In these unprecedented times, we need effective immune support. That's why I'm excited to introduce two formulas that work, CV Defense and CV Acute. There's nothing quite like them. CV Defense is a daily preventative. The only supplement that delivers the six most important ingredients to optimize your immune function, including PEA, a critical molecule for long-term immunity at the cellular level. CV Acute is a fast-acting, great-tasting syrup for direct immune activation. It eliminates invaders with a fruit flower and root of patented Chinese medicine. I take it when I feel run down to fend off respiratory infections. Both products are safe, all-natural, and backed by numerous clinical trials. For more information and to order, go to TotalImmuneHealth.com and take advantage of discounts from 30 to 50% just for listening to Intelligent Medicine. That's TotalImmuneHealth.com. TotalImmuneHealth.com for the most exciting immune support products in years. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. This is a podcast that I'm uh, very much looking forward to uh, doing. Uh, not that I don't look forward to doing all my podcasts, but uh, in particular today we have uh, a very, very important guest. Uh, he's Dr. Richard Feynman, uh, who is known as uh, a real iconoclast in his chosen field of nutrition because he is uh, one of the foremost advocates for low-carb dieting, and that's uh, bucking the trend in his field. He's a professor of cell biology, biochemistry at the State University of New York, SUNY Downstate Medical Center in Brooklyn. And uh, he has uh, worked in uh, many areas uh, related to um, uh, protein chemistry and physiology and uh, biology, biochemistry. Uh, he uh, teaches at the medical school. He's been a pioneer in incorporating nutrition into the biochemistry curriculum. I wish he'd been my professor when I was in medical school way back when. Uh, he is principal author of a 26-author compendium entitled Dietary Carbohydrate Restriction as the First Approach in Diabetes Management, Critical Review and Evidence Base. And on a more popular level, we want to share this with you because uh, you as astute listeners may very well want to turn to this resource because it's a wonderful, wonderful book. The World Turned Upside Down, The Second Low-Carbohydrate Revolution, uh, which is about to come out in its uh, second edition. Is that correct, uh, Richard? It's actually already out. It's uh, called Nutrition in Crisis, and you can uh, get it at uh, Amazon or from the publisher Chelsea Green. Uh, so it, it's been out for a few days now. And so the the subtitle there is How the Science of Carbohydrate Restriction Arising from a Ragtag Collection of Popular Diets Defeated the Powerful Low-Fat Army and Became the Default Approach to Health. And uh, clearly there is, there's really been a turning point in our understanding about how low-carb diets can be employed to further health. But the, the, the battle isn't over. Uh, as we'll soon see, because it's still a lot of controversy about this. But uh, you, you take aim uh, in your book at what you claim is the deplorable state of nutrition science. Can you can you explain why you came to that conclusion? I mean, you are uh, a biochemist, uh, an expert in this field. You're an educator, uh, and yet you see that 
this area is, is replete with problems. There are many problems. There are uh, technical problems. The real problem is that a, a large part of it is not good science. And basically, science is, uh, science is really not cyclotrons. It's, it's basic honesty. It's basic uh, trying to ask the appropriate question and uh, deal with the answer, even if it's not what you wanted to hear. And that's what we don't see. There's also technical problems in the sense that a good deal of what's going on in uh, nutrition is running uh, with a technique uh, known as epidemiology, where you uh, look at population data and you try to make an association between a particular stimulus and an outcome, say a, a disease. And uh, uh, that has uh, real standards. Uh, n nothing in si science is a human activity, so th things aren't really absolute. But there are standards in epidemiology, and those are violated uh, consistently. So can, that's you, can you give us an example of, of a study that you feel is particularly egregious in its misrepresentation of its conclusions? I mean, I can think of many, you know, uh, among them, uh, the recent study showing that, once again, eggs are bad for you. And then, of course, uh, the uh, study by uh, Lancet, uh, which suggested that uh, meat uh, is bad for you. And then there have been studies that, uh, another Lancet study that showed that the low carb diet actually is dangerous. Uh, you know, I can think of many, so they just come fast and furious. Yeah, well, I think, well, they've been around for a long time. It's been a consistent pattern. The reason that they've suddenly uh, intensified is that 2018 was the year of low carb. Mm. And uh, what we saw were three or four really strong studies which pretty much nailed the case that a low-carbohydrate diet or keto diet, some kind of uh, significant carbohydrate restriction is the first approach to treating uh, diabetes. Uh, uh, type 2 diabetes, well, type 1 diabetes, you know, is uh, patients with type 1 diabetes are not making insulin or not making a sufficient amount, and uh, they do require uh, external insulin or other medication, but a low-carbohydrate diet has a, a dramatically a good effect on this so that they need less and they get better uh, results. And, and you may be familiar with Dr. Richard Bernstein. Uh, Dr. Bernstein and I were classmates at Einstein. So I'm very familiar with uh, with that approach, the low-carb approach for type 1 diabetes. He himself has type 1 diabetes. He's going strong uh, as he uh, moves along into his, I believe, and it was well into his 70s. So um, clearly yes, there's a place for it in type 1 diabetes, but especially in type 2 diabetes, right? Well, type 2 diabetes patients uh, do are making insulin, uh, but uh, they have... Uh, what's usually described as insulin resistance, it's not uh, having the effect that it's supposed to have. The uh, Insulin is a kind of global hormone, 
And so we think of it mostly in terms of regulating blood glucose. So, for example, uh, insulin in a normal person, uh, when carbohydrate comes in in the diet, uh, insulin will turn off the production of uh, glucose uh, by the liver. Uh, so that uh, glucose doesn't uh, become too high. It, it, uh, it's important to uh, regulate blood glucose at a uh, consistent level. Uh, obviously, too too little is uh, not good because uh, several cells depend on glucose, particularly brain cells. And uh, too much is not good because glucose is uh, chemically reactive. So a person with type 2 diabetes will have high blood glucose because they're continuing to produce uh, glucose from the liver, even in the face of more glucose coming in. Uh, but insulin is also a global hormone, so they'll also have lipid uh, effects. And uh, for many people, especially if there's no end organ damage, uh, a low-carbohydrate diet can be a cure. They're essentially... Uh, they don't, the blood glucose is regulated, the lipid effects go away, and uh, most important, they come off medication. I don't know any disease where coming off medication isn't a sign that you're better. And even, you know, I I attended recently uh, in New York a couple of years ago, they had an exhibit on the origins of uh, insulin, and before the, the advent of insulin, uh, people, of course, succumb to their diabetes. But one of the strategies that actually sustained life, it wasn't perfect, it didn't, you know, uh, cure people of their diabetes, but it did allow them to uh, have some additional longevity, was a very low-carbohydrate diet. And I actually saw diaries scribbled by kids in the 19-teens and 1920s, uh, which very scrupulously noted uh, their proteins, their fats, their carbohydrates, uh, that was uh, the dictum uh, prior to the introduction of uh, a life-saving medication. That was the only way people stayed alive with a very low-carb diet. Right. Well, uh, there were also uh, also very low uh, calorie starvation diet was also part one of the possible treatments. Although that may uh, have been exactly because you're also reducing carbohydrate. And one one of the uh, Major figures before insulin was Elliot Jocelyn, mm -hmm. after whom uh, the uh, uh, Di uh, Diabetes Institute is named. And uh, Jocelyn has published, I think, a book in probably 10 uh, editions. You can actually buy them on uh, uh, Amazon if you are interested in history of medicine. Uh, I Possibly all books are part of history now, but uh, and uh, you can see his recommendations for low carbohydrate mm -hmm. uh, diets, and he says, you know, you have to eat meat and vegetables, and that's about it. And that was like nineteen twenty or something like that, you know, very right. you know, uh, almost a hundred years ago, uh, and yet that was there's a sort of a lost art to the dietary management of diabetes. What happened? Why did we go what uh, happened astray? Well, what happened is that when insulin was discovered, it, it was a miracle. I mean, you had even, uh, I mean, part of it is that uh, we didn't know until, uh, I think, the 30s that the difference between type 1 and type 2. And so uh, patients with type 1 really d depended on insulin and could die without it. And... Uh, 
you, you know, Jocelyn uh, had a reputation beyond uh, uh, his intellectual understanding as a very caring doctor, and he suddenly saw insulin as a miracle. He could now save people's lives. The mistake he made was that he uh, let, uh, uh, well, I think we all, it's a mistake that persists to this day that uh, diabetes is a uh, hormone deficiency disease. Mm -hmm. And while uh, superficially that's true, it's more a system disease. And what that means is that you can't get uh, real control of it by exogenous insulin. So what uh, what Jocelyn thought was that, well, now we have control because the patient can now eat, quote, uh, their normal diet, which of course included carbohydrates, as long as they, quote, cover it with insulin. Mm -hmm. And that... Uh, it led to the dietary exchanges, the carb exchanges, you know, these are the portions that you can have. And then uh, actually people sometimes chase their insulin. It's like they're taking a set amount of insulin. And they have to eat a certain amount of carbohydrates to keep up with their insulin. Uh, it's uh, tragic, really. I mean, be, well, the, what's... Uh, seriously tragic about it is that you can't get the kind of control that uh, you want on uh, uh, that a normal person has by exogenous insulin uh, unless you need very little and you need much less on a low carbohydrate diet mm -hmm. and uh, so it's still a adjunct to uh, a person with type 1 diabetes of course still needs medication and uh, but a uh, low-carb diet is now a, a very valuable uh, uh, adjunct. And this was brought out by work from uh, David Ludwig's lab, but Bettina Leonard's uh, did a study through the Internet, through people uh, out there uh, who actually have mm -hmm. diabetes. And gave they surveyed them. Yeah. Medical, yeah, and, and backed it up with medical uh, records. And um, it was, a, uh, I think, a landmark partly because of what people thought was wrong with it. And what they said is, well, you're just getting uh, people's opinion off the Internet. But that's good. You have to back it up. You have to make sure that it's accurate. Uh, you have to make sure that it's consistent. But it's a access to the patient that we didn't have. And it's real life experience. It's not under some artificial uh, lab conditions. It's not with an experimental animal. It's with people in real life who are reporting actual uh, implementation of a diet that they're not doing under uh, some condition where, you know, they're in a metabolic ward. Uh, you said it. Uh, and, and that's... Uh so people criticized it for that, but they didn't see that this is... Uh, if we follow this, we're going to learn a lot. And then there were three other uh, studies uh, from uh, Sarah Hallberg and uh, Jeff Bullock and uh, uh, Laura Saslow, uh, just essentially nailing down that this is the best way to go for uh, uh, diabetes. And uh, the review that you mentioned, we emphasize that this is the first approach. 
you know, not everybody's going to want to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, there are people who will tell you they'd rather take the medicine yep. and try to control what they eat. And that's their choice if it's offered to them. Uh, our objection to traditional medicine is it's not offered. And it's not offered in a consistent way. And it's not, if it's offered, it's not offered in a positive way, uh, despite the uh, uh, obvious outcomes uh, which are so beneficial. And so when medication is, excuse me, when medication is offered, uh, they've actually determined that getting blood sugar ultra low with more medication uh, may put the patient in jeopardy. So they become more lenient about what your hemoglobin A1C should be if you have diabetes, precisely because it's not how low you go, it's how you get there. If you get there via a stringent diet and exercise, get down to a hemoglobin A1C of 5.6, uh, that's a hell of a lot better than using medications to artificially tamp down your glucose. Right. I, I think uh, it's very important to say, though, there is one uh, uh, a serious warning about a low-carbohydrate diet, which is that if you uh, have diabetes and you're on medication, mm -hmm. you should not go on a low-carbohydrate diet without talking to the health provider because they have to reduce the medication right. uh, in advance. And, uh, I mean, to me, that's one of the signs that it's uh, so effective because it's doing the same thing as the medication. But you get better control because uh, it's an endogenous control system. You have uh, have evolution working on your side. Uh, so, uh, the... Um, so I think one of the imp important ideas is that insulin is a kind of master hormone, and that's why diabetes is kind of a uh, iconic metabolic disease. So one of the reasons that we ask whether a low-carbohydrate diet will be good for cancer is because of the association between diabetes and cancer and also uh, with insulin itself. So uh, I always describe... Uh, Insulin, well, I, I describe metabolism as like American football. You know, there's at least 22 different things going on at once. And the key to the play may uh, is usually taken as the quarterback. So that's why TV follows the quarterback first. Not every play is like that, uh, but you get very far. And insulin is the quarterback in uh, metabolism. And it's a, a good place to start. It's not going to guarantee you uh, every single event, but uh, uh, that's the idea. Is there any prospect that uh, the powers that be, uh, the, the uh, American Diabetes Association, the uh, conventional uh, RD groups, uh, will begin to recognize this and employ a, a low-carb diet? Or is, is there still such innate resistance to the idea well, that fat could be beneficial? Uh, there's both. Uh, the um, uh, not so, I can't think of the name of the uh, uh, of the site, but it's from the AMA, and it has an evaluation of the uh, keto diet becoming more popular. Right, and it describes uh, an experiment being funded by the Arnold Foundation that. Uh, David Ludwig is carrying out, and then it has some of the old guard uh, giving uh, slightly 
positive points of view now saying it's safe, whereas they had a different opinion a year or two ago. It's what I call slouching towards low carb. Mm-hmm. They're trying to accept it without losing face. At the same time, there's a uh, vehement, desperate uh, uh, backlash. So the, the, the same uh, the same message that came in my mailbox with this study of uh, Ludwig's uh, experiment also referred to the uh, eggs and uh, cholesterol. Uh, and uh, that paper is uh, would be laughably bad if it weren't uh, that it's... Uh, so desperate, so poorly done, and one of the authors is on the Dietary Guidelines Committee that I think just met this morning. And uh, so we got things going in both directions. Mm-hmm. Well, let's take a look at that uh, egg study, uh, because it all kind of goes back to what's called the lipid heart disease hypothesis, which is that cholesterol and saturated fat uh, are what gunk up the arteries and, and intuitively i mean that really that that idea has been really sold to the american public kind of makes sense you know you eat a greasy burger and that grease literally goes into your arteries and lines them with gunk yellowish gunk it's an appealing hypothesis what's wrong with that uh it's uh your body is not at 37 degrees it i mean your body is at 37 degrees it, your body is at a higher temperature it's it's making your uh, uh, artery smooth. I'm just kidding. What's <laughs> it's, wrong it's with it is, it's, uh, it, yeah, it's not true. Uh, but the real point is that we've done experiments. And the, uh, the Framingham study, well, what I ask uh, medical students, uh, one of the questions that I, uh, I, I don't actually put this on an exam, but I give it in a lecture, I say, the large-scale experiment that showed uh, the value of the diet-heart hypothesis was the Framingham study. This is a very large study carried out originally in the 60s, or the Oslo Heart Study, uh, or and then I list uh, five others, and of course the answer is none of the above. You know, we keep doing these studies. They show no effect of saturated fat, no effect of total fat, no effect of cholesterol. And uh, the... Uh, medical establishment has given itself the privilege of ignoring those. And uh, they'll probably do another one. I always uh, quote my daughter at age nine on this issue. We were uh, talking, we were talking about superheroes. And I told her that when I was a kid, I used to listen to Superman and the voiceover would say, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. It's in the days of radio, it sounds like. Right. And she said, you leap tall buildings, you only get a single bound. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's right. They keep doing these things. Uh, I don't know what they expect to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, the uh, I, I think the, the problem is that... Uh, w- well, the problem is uh, one of the things that I said, that we're not accepting the failures of these studies. Uh, the other thing is that the uh, when, when I teach uh, uh, students how to write a, a paper or how to give a seminar, uh, 
I uh, uh, ask them, what is it that you want to do? What is the main uh, goal in presenting this? And uh, uh, before they get really annoyed, I tell them that the answer is teach. You want, you want to uh, transmit information. And I tell them, because they're students, I say, you know, uh, when you give a seminar, we're willing to uh, accept the fact uh, that you know stuff. You're not trying to prove anything anymore. you got to teach us. And that's what these uh, diet heart studies are not doing. They're, they're snowing people. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I'm trying to do is, uh, and in the book, I try to give some guide to how to read the studies that you, uh, yourself. And uh, the advantage Criti critically, critically evaluate them, and uh, yeah. exactly, yeah. And uh, uh, the advantage that we have that we didn't have, uh, you know, twenty years ago is is you have access to these studies through the internet, and uh, you can be your own expert. the The trouble is that you have to. Uh, it's it's science, but it's not rocket science. Mm -hmm. But even simple science, you have to understand what's going on. And the the key uh, question in epidemiology, which is where most of the trouble comes from, is the uh, comparison of two different studies. You know, for example, a low-fat study and a normal study. You, you compare those and ask, what is the relation between heart disease and how much fat you eat? Mm -hmm. And what uh, what you do is not that complicated. Uh, they can make it complicated, but basically we all know what uh, probability is. It's the number of ways of winning divided by all the ways. Uh, it's uh, what you do in Las Vegas, and uh, uh, you may <laughs> you may not make a perfect deduction about what the uh, probability is, but uh, uh, it's not a, a bizarre concept. And related to that, uh, the odds. So probability is the number of ways of winning uh, divided by the total number of ways of, of playing. The odds are the number of ways of winning divided by the number of ways of uh, losing. Uh, the kinds of studies that go on in uh, epidemiology... Uh, the incidence of those diseases is, is relatively rare, so it doesn't matter. The odds uh, and the probability are very close. Probability in the uh, medical epidemiology is called risk. And uh, there's one final variation. Uh, I know this sounds technical, but it has a, a simple bottom line, and that is that if you measure the risk over time, it's called hazard. Mm -hmm. When you, If you open the paper... The hazard ratio, the relative risk, uh, the odds ratio, those are all the same thing. Uh, they're not exactly the same, but for all purposes, when you're talking about disease states that are studied in epidemiology, you can consider them the same. So you're in a position now to ask about uh, relative risk. What's the risk in uh, case one versus the risk in case two? The standard in epidemiology uh, the classic case is the study of cigarette smoke and lung cancer. And this was done by Bradford Hill and his associate uh, Richard Dahl. So what they did is, uh, they, they actually, it was a kind of, uh, it was a snail mail survey. 
they actually mailed uh, physicians and asked them, uh, got information about their pattern, and then they uh, measured, uh, uh, they got medical records and the uh, uh, number of people who had died in their study. And as uh, Dahl described it, uh, they got a whole bunch of, uh, they had a, a few hundred people who had, of these physicians who had died, and they had 36 who had died of lung cancer. So then they uh, wanted to see, of the people who had died of lung cancer, how many were big cigarette smokers. And uh, the answer was all of them. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a pretty resounding conclusion there. Uh, that statistics is easy to deal with. Mm -hmm. uh, well, they then, of course, carried out a, a much more extensive study. So what they found is that the odds ratio, in other words, the chance of uh, uh, dying as a cigarette smoker versus the chance of dying uh, of, lung, uh, of lung cancer, the chance of dying of lung cancer as a cigarette smoker compared to that of a non-smoker was 20 to 1. If you were a heavy smoker, it was 30 to 1. And what uh, Bradford Hill said is that the uh, if you now... Uh, switched over to a different disease, if you looked at heart disease, there was only about two to one for cigarette smoke, uh, uh, cigarette smokers. We hardly ever see two to one in any of these epidemiologic studies. Yeah, I think it was like eggs, uh, high egg consumption increased your risk by a certain, you know, small, low digit. Uh, 1.17. Okay, there you go. And, and that's to, supposed to be a, a public health message that we should all stop eating eggs? I mean, I just don't see how that translates. I don't see how it got published. Yeah. Well, the, uh, one of the people, Linda Van Horn, is an author who's on the uh, uh, Dietary Guidelines Committee. So uh, uh, in case you're uh, having any optimism about the outcome there. Yeah. Right, exactly. Uh, they, they wield a lot of influence. I'd yeah. like to pause now because we divide these podcasts into two parts, but I have uh, a lot of questions for you about uh, what you alluded to earlier, which is uh, low-carb or keto diets for cancer. That's another uh, research interest of yours. Uh, we're talking to Dr. Richard Feynman. He's a professor of cell biology at the State University of New York, SUNY Downstate Medical Center in Brooklyn, and uh, author of uh, give us the new title of the book because the book has been uh, rebranded, right? It used to be called uh, uh, right. "The World Turned Upside Down: The Second Low Carbohydrate Revolution." It is now being re-released as uh, "Nutrition in Crisis," and it has this uh, subtitle uh, "Flawed Studies and uh, Other Pejoratives That I Can't Remember." Okay. <laughs> Nutrition in Crisis is plenty. <laughs> I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast.